0: Hi, this is Aaron Weinacht with the uh, Russian and Eurasian Studies section of the New Books Network. And our uh, guest here today is Dr. Carolani, who's got a uh, new book entitled The Soviet Writers' Union and Its Leaders. And uh, so thank you for being with us today, Carol.
1: Thank you. It's delightful to be with you, Aaron.
0: Yep, I'm looking forward. to This This is quite an interesting book. I'd like to hear more about it here. Uh, Before we get into the meat of the book, uh, could you give us some background uh, on yourself, how you got interested in in Russian history and literature and so on?
1: Sure. Um, I began taking Russian in high school, and that was really the beginning of my interest. I don't come from a family with Russian background, so there was really nothing of that sort. Um, In college, uh, I spent the summer between my junior and senior years on a study program in what was then Leningrad, and that is when I fell in love with Russia and Russian culture. So that really was um, when I decided I was going to do graduate work and combine my interest in Russia with my interest in literature. So really, it's it's a short story.
0: <laughs> where did uh, where did you end up going to graduate school?
1: You know, I um, went to the University of Chicago from my undergraduate years and right through my MA and my PhD. I couldn't seem to get out of that place, but it, it, it's okay. It's okay. It was uh, it's kind of was a good match for me, I guess. So uh, it all worked out.
0: <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's a long time in uh, in one place. Oh, uh, yes, it
1: was. Oh, yes, it was. Especially considering how long it actually took me to do my PhD. I, I think I was well over the average in terms of number of years.
0: <laughs> so uh, I thought maybe um, the best way to start off talking about your book is uh, just the phrase uh, writers union uh might be uh, uh, raised some questions in and of itself to uh, people listening. So I was wondering if maybe you could talk about why, why did the USSR have a writer's union at all? And what was it? What was its kind of foundational logic or purpose?
1: Yeah. Uh, I really thank you for, for having the wit to ask that question uh, because um, of, of course over here, a union is something that protects workers, and we think of unions as being advocates for its members. Um, this is not what the case was in the Soviet Union. Um, Stalin decided to create a writers' union. Uh, because he was unhappy with the people that were in charge of leading literature before that time. Um, And so in early 1932, um, he essentially deposed that group that had been his sort of uh, his private literary cadres, if you want to put it that way, uh, because he thought that they were getting too arrogant and too big for their britches. Um, He wanted to have more control over it. He wanted to have more obedient people um, that he could manage to be the liaison between the party and writers. Um, So he devised the term creative unions, and the writers' union was the most important and the first one. So it was a way for him really to feel that he could exercise more control over writers and then in subsequent years throughout the 30s um other creative unions were established for architects for musicians for artists um and so forth
0: so you you said that uh, um I think I've got your uh, quoting you here, actually, that uh, buying off writers was the the union's uh, founding assumption then. So could you expand on that uh, idea a bit?
1: Sure. Um, So I'll start by taking it a step back, and that will lead into the idea of of buying writers off. Um, Before the writers' union was created, Um, the group that was in charge of literature was known as RAP. It was the Russian Association of Proletarian Writers. And it was led by a very tight-knit coterie of arrogant young critics who posed as proletarians, uh, but really they came from middle-class backgrounds. But the thing about them was they enjoyed berating and harassing other writers and they did this to anyone that was not part of their own group. So um, they did it to non-party writers, but they also did it to a number of communist writers. Uh, The most famous one being uh, Mayakovsky, the poet. Uh, Famous communist writers um, who just had other ideas about what the relationship between literature and communist society should be. Um, and so when Stalin deposed these rap people and announced that they were there was going to be a writers' union, um, he said that from now on, there wasn't going to be that kind of harassment. There were not going to be cliques, powerful people versus unpowerful people. And most importantly, that class background would not be an impediment to being a member of the Writers' Union in good standing. So all of those causes for harassment that Rapp had invoked, you know, this person is bourgeois, this person is anti-communist, this other person is not one of us. Stalin basically said, we're sweeping all of that away. Writers, all you have to do is declare your loyalty to the Soviet Union, and you will be welcome into the Writers' Union. So this sounded terrific, and it was welcomed by most writers across a wide spectrum of beliefs. But when you think about it, and when you have the advantage of hindsight that we do now, um, saying that all you have to do is declare your loyalty to the Soviet Union and you will be welcome into the Writers' Union, that already contains the seeds of the buy-off. The Writers' Union offered perks. It elevated writers into an elite class and it gave them access to better housing, to scarce food, and even to exclusive vacations. The price for that was you had to write works that were perceived as loyal works that portrayed the Soviet Union in a positive light and works that concentrated on portraying the Soviet Union <laughs> not works that explored say maybe your maybe personal backgrounds or whatever you know they had to be sort of socially and politically significant they had to be on a, a grand scale, and they had to be affirmative of the Soviet Union. Um, so joining the Writers' Union now became a kind of a career choice. I can have a successful profession, the equivalent of making a lot of money, right? Except it didn't come in the form of money. It came in the form of uh, other, other types of privileges, both honor, public honor, and material privilege. But in exchange for that, you shaped your writing, Maybe you gave up your most cherished ideas, or maybe you made some perhaps more minor adjustments, but you weren't your own literary master.
0: Could, uh, if we could go back for just a second, I wanted to see if you could... um... Clarify a bit. What were some of the various factions and groups that had different opinions on what specifically uh, Soviet or communist literature should be prior to the the formation of the Writers Union in thirty two? So, kind of during that that uh, rap era, like, could you give the listeners kind of a sense of the you know the lay of the land or what what were some of the commitments of those different cliques?
1: Yeah. Um, so, rap had a literary program um, which said we want to make the communist Tolstoy. We should learn from Tolstoy and other 19th century literary greats and basically uh, on that basis create a new literature with a literature of communism. So that actually was a very conservative line for a communist literary group. Um, opposed to that line was the Pyrrhivyezev group, um, which said that's absolutely backwards. You guys have got it backwards. We can't learn from classic writers who came from the Russian nobility and who were landowners and belonged to the privileged class. Um, and the Pyrrhivyezev group thought that your class background would determine the kind of literature you wrote. That, that's a much more clearly Marxist position. It's a position that's consistent with Marxism. And they were pointing out that the rap people uh, seemed to have their heads screwed on backwards. They, they claimed to be communists. They claimed to be proletarians, which the leaders were not, despite the name of the group. Um, so there was great friction between those two groups. And there were um, debates that were characterized by great animosity. And then just to mention one other communist group that was again different from these two, um, there were various avant-garde groups and Mayakovsky would probably be the most salient figure here. Um, He um, started a group called Left. Um, left, the left front of art, so a play on left and left, um, in which what was the most important thing was experimental art. As you're breaking into a new society and recreating society, you would also want a new experimental and modernist art to reflect the fact that both society and literature and art are breaking away from conservative and traditional modes. Um, so avant-gardeism is totally opposed to the rap program of learning from the classics, and the Piraeus of people are concerned really with class background more than uh, literary style, I guess one could say. So that's three different types of communist groups.
0: So uh, uh, as, I, as I read it anyway, uh, the implementation of, of socialist realism then became the way you kind of resolve those conflicts uh, by, you know, kind of ramming through an official ideology. Um, so, you know, granting that what socialist realism was seems to have been contested quite a bit. Uh, maybe this is a, a good point to, for you to talk for a bit about that. You know the imposition of socialist realism. So what, what was that, and you know what was gonna, how was that gonna solve these different uh, clique problems and so on?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, so that's that's a, a great question as well. When Stalin created the Writers Union in 1932, he swept away all of the different groups that had previously existed. RAP, the Pyotriversovites, left. Um, and he said, we don't need different groups anymore because everybody is now writing from a Soviet perspective. You people are all kind of essentially writing in the same way. Now, of course, this wasn't true, um, but it was, it was convenient for him to take that position. And so along with the sweeping away of the groups was the sweeping away of their literary programs, at least as far as any sort of public proclamation of them. Stalin and Gronsky, who was the uh, the cadre that he chose to put in charge of literature as his liaison to writers in the period 1932-1933, um, talked about what the literary program should be. And maybe not even what the literary program should be, but you need a name. You need a label. You need something for people to grab onto. And they came up with socialist realism. I think for Stalin, that would have been enough. Um, but he was also drawing Gorky into the brand new writers union. Um, he wanted Gorky there as um, the writer, the Russian writer who was most famous both nationally and internationally, and who could really give a prominent respectable face to the Writers' Union. Well, Gorky wanted to have a full-fledged debate on what socialist realism was actually going to be in the hands of writers. And so there were such debates. Um, But in the end, it didn't matter because a censorship was so strong that you just had to, you know, put your druthers aside and write affirmative literature. Um, so it had to be literature with a positive hero, it had to be literature that showed that through great personal sacrifice, the country and the population would benefit and move and move forward. Um, so socialist realism was a name. People had different theories about it, um, but ultimately, because of censorship, it produced a, a literature that, for the most part, was monotonous. Uh,
0: if anybody's interested in uh, you know tackling a kind of representative uh, example of the of the genre, um, you know things would be you know translated into English. Um, Got any? Got any recommendations for what might give people kind of the general flavor? I mean, I've got a copy of uh, Gledkoff's Cement on my shelf, but, you know, that's just one example. You got any any others you might recommend?
1: So it depends on what the reader wants. Cement is a great example, and, and it's it's a pretty good read. So I think that's a good one uh, by Gledkoff. Um, Probably the most widely read one by contemporaries in the 1930s was How the Steel Was Tempered by Ostrovsky, by Nikolai Ostrovsky. Um, I don't think most readers today are going to be terribly captivated by those books. Um, but, But it is good to keep in mind that at the time, for Soviets who wanted to read about the experiences they had been through, um, the Civil War, the upheaval of society, the changes in the 1920s, these books reflected those changes. And so they had an interest for their countrymen at that time that that by now has fallen away. But they are good examples of... Um, what socialist realism was. Um, and and uh, Katerina Clark in her, in her now classic book, um, History is Ritual, that actually is the subtitle of it, and, and I'm forgetting the title, has actually demonstrated why those books like Cement and How the Steel Was Tempered um, were models of socialist realism. Um, a book that was labeled socialist realist by some people, also from the same era. And which is um, a a much more interesting book for us today, um, would be, uh, And Quiet Flows the Dawn. Uh, That's the way it's usually translated into English. Here, the dawn refers to a river, right? (laughs) The Russian river, the dawn. I think the, the title in English is very unfortunate, <laughs> because Don has all sorts of other meanings and connotations. It's not some Italian Don, um, but The Quiet Don and Quiet Flows the Don, uh, written by Sholechoff, um and begun in the first volume of it, came out in 1928, um, is about as complex a book that could have passed as a socialist realist work, that could have received approval to be published. Um, actually, it was the first volume was published even before socialist realism was declared, um, the literary method. Um, but, but because that book shows conflicts that normally later on were not allowed to be shown, uh, but he got that one through. And he had trouble finishing the remaining volumes because censorship became much stricter, um, and so it was giving him a writer's block.
0: <laughs> Does, uh, maybe maybe now would be a good time to think out. So, you know, socialist realism, uh, you know, it's kind of it seems like to me anyway, is kind of an essentially contested uh, concept. So you know, over the course of the existence of the Writers Union, like how does how does context affect what counts as, as proper socialist realism at, at at any given time? Like presumably, uh, you can um, you know it's permissible to write more nationalistically during the Second World War than than previously, or something like that. So what 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 would your response to that be?
1: Yeah. Um, as the Communist Party line changed, um, it made certain things less possible to say in literature. Um, a book, a, a socialist realist work, which I, I'm not going to recommend to our listeners, um, <laughs> called Wetstones, <laughs> Wet um, and in Russian, Bruski, by Panfiorov. But this is another of these mammoth, you know, it was in like it came out in four different volumes. Um, he had names of various Communist Party officials in there. And when those officials were purged in the Great Terror of 1937, 1938, um, all of that had to be taken out, books had to be removed from from libraries, the passages had to be revised, then the thing had to be reprinted and reissued. Um, So sometimes it would be on that sort of, um, I guess you'd call it a micro level, right? That just people, famous people had been mentioned who now had been purged. Um, The other thing I guess that I want to mention about socialist realism is um, Gorky, who did not have a hand in the name socialist realism, Um, came up with a justification for the name. Uh, It was realist. That's pretty clear. You know, avant-garde literary styles were rejected. A book had to be realist. That is, you should be able to see yourself reflected in the character's verisimilitude, right? This should be something recognizable. Um, Had to be realist, but it would not be critical. And Gorky said, "Well, the kind of literature that Russia produced, that the great Russian classics produced in the nineteenth century, we could call that critical realism. It was realistic, but it, it criticized injustices in society that it reflected. But in the socialist period, we don't have we don't have injustices." There's no need to criticize. So opposed to the previous critical realism would be the present socialist realism, where socialist carries the concepts of justice and a forward-moving proletariat.
0: Yeah, so you're... What you just said there kind of takes us in the direction of talking a bit about how the terror in the late 30s affected the Union. But before we uh, get to that far, um, there's kind of a a broader conceptual point that you you utilized quite a bit in the book, and that was that you spent a lot of time talking about how the writers – Uh, seem to have lived in a kind of shame and honor culture. And so I was wondering if you could uh, expand on that a bit, since that seems to play such an important role in how the Union actually functioned.
1: Yeah. Um, So the Soviet Union, especially in the 30 years that Stalin ruled it, was a shame culture, a shame culture. Um, And psychologists have documented the features of a shame culture. The founding uh, element of it is that your public reputation, your honor, your achievements do not come from you. They are conferred upon you. They are conferred upon you by an outside source, and that outside source is whoever is the ruler or the dominant figure or the dominant group in your society. So in the Soviet Union, your reputation was conferred upon you by the Communist Party, and in the Stalin years, by the Communist Party, often in the person of Stalin himself. Um, what that means is that if an outside source can confer your honorable reputation on you, it can also take it away. And it can do that at any time. And that is uh, the fundamental feature of a shame culture. Um, and it's most, it's most um, clear to see that in the case of a communist party member, um, because if a member was expelled from the party, they would lose all of their prestige, they would lose their position, they would even lose their identity because being a communist in the 1920s and 1930s was a fundamental part of a cadre's identity, of a communist party member's identity. Um, So this was not a rare occurrence, it was a frequent occurrence and so People were in fear that it would happen to them. Um, So another feature of a shame culture is that it has a need to shame people. It has a need to shame people. Um, By shaming people, you get other people to watch, to watch this spectacle. You do public shamings, public campaigns. Other people watch this spectacle and decide that, oh, I better do all I can to Prove my loyalty, because I don't want to be shamed the way this person was shamed. The trouble is, it doesn't matter what you do to prove your loyalty, because the shame culture doesn't actually care about that. It cares about constantly making you prove it, and reprove it, and prove it again. And so there's, it's built upon a need for periodic shaming campaigns. And who gets victimized by those campaigns is in large part arbitrary. The shame culture needs victims to shame and who the victims are is less important than the fact of having victims, but they should be public figures because um, that makes the impact of the spectacle that much stronger.
0: I'm just just curious, this is kind of a, a slide aside here. Uh, before we get to the, the, the terror, but um, you know, I'm thinking about the role of shame and honor in uh you know in Russian history much earlier, you know, all the uh you know instances of uh disputes and and, and so on. Like does anybody argue that there's a kind of fundamental continuity across the revolution from the way shame and honor functioned in in the czarist era, into the Soviet era, or do you know? Do, do, do we, you know, is it better to see those as two kind of fundamentally different things?
1: Oh, I think there are um, there are certainly. Lines that one could draw, I don't whether they're dotted lines or solid lines—I'm yeah. not really sure. I'm—I'm I'm sure that someone has written on that. I'm sorry, I can't actually pull out a source for you, but I mean, you've just—you've just pointed it out yourself, right? So, it—it yeah. yeah, it is there. I think it's just so much, uh, so much stronger in the Soviet period.
0: Yeah, I just, it was a, a thought that just occurred to me while you were talking, so I, I, uh, I'm i kind of scratching my head about that, too. I'll have to think about uh, where it might look for such a, uh, uh, you know, uh, research. Um, so uh, that, that kind of gets us into the, the terror a bit. So maybe, uh, you know, continuing with uh, the shame and honor thing, so... Um, I mean, would you see that then as one of the, you know, kind of the motive logics of why the terror in the late thirties happened at all then?
1: Oh, that's certainly an important aspect of it. Um, you know, another aspect of it was that Stalin was finally strong enough to eliminate, um, the old Bolsheviks whom he saw as a a threat to his power. Um, and so that was what was behind the, the show trials, the big ones in Moscow, um, but yeah, but but certainly that's part of it. And uh, you know, Stalin operated by a kind of a an alternation between periods of terror and periods of relaxation and, and something closer to normalization. Um, and you know, what's important is the idea of alternation. It's never just static. Okay, the terror is over. Uh, things are, are sort of it's possible to live a more normal life now. Yes, but it's only time until the next wave of terror. Um, and this is also part of it, keeping people off balance so that you really never know where you stand and you can never feel safe. Um, the, the, maybe, maybe to clarify for, for listeners, I um, in connection with the shame culture, the reason it plays a large role in my book is because I argue that Stalin chose the leaders of the Writers' Union with an eye to whether he could manipulate their personality. Um, Did they have personality traits that he could exploit? Um, And when you get to Fadyev, who was the Writers' Union leader who had the longest tenure there um, from oh, f- oh, 15 years, really, starting in 1939. Um, Stalin had been working with him since the 20s, but Zayev had been one of the leading coterie in rap. He had been humiliated publicly and personally by Stalin himself in 1932, when rap was dissolved. And that was not an arbitrary choice of humiliation. That one uh, was very calculated on Stalin's part. In Faddeyev, he had a literary cadre that he hoped to continue to make use of, but he was going to have to break him down before that. He was going to have to turn him into a thoroughly obedient subordinate. And that humiliation publicly in 1932, uh, which was dealt to him at large meetings of writers who were the very people that he himself had harassed in the pages of Rapp's journal, was an important step in breaking Fadzeev down. And taking someone who had embraced communism as a young man at the time of the Civil War because he truly believed in its ideals, um, a man who believed that he was a strong person and acted with integrity and independence, and Stalin undertook basically a systematic uh, procedure of breaking him down, getting him to compromise, getting him to accept that party duty was more important than his own independence, getting him to accept that any order he was given from his superiors was more important than anything else. Uh, And he finally wound up with a completely uh, compromised and obedient official in Fadzeyev that he could then rely on uh, for the last 15 years of his rule. I'm not sure where I've gotten. I, I have a feeling, Aaron, that I've strayed rather far from, from your original question, so you might want to remind me of it. I apologize for that. Oh,
0: no, that's that's okay. The, uh, um, that's I, I want to actually get to a bit more on 50 Uh You know, definitely we need to talk about the you know your interpretation of his suicide and his suicide note. But uh, let's maybe go back a bit. Um, to think some more about the terror here. So uh, um, you spent a good bit of time talking about the effect of the terror on the writer's union, just kind of sociologically, like the the terror hit the writer's union pretty hard. Could you uh, kind of explain that? How hard?
1: Yeah. Um, the terror was a good way of getting rid of writers uh, the older generation of writers um, who had established themselves as writers before the Russian Revolution um, and who for the most part were non-party and were critical of the Bolsheviks and the Soviet government. Um, the Writers' Union lost about 25 to 30% of its members in the Great Terror of 37-38. And, And those members were replenished by new admissions. And by by the late 30s, those new admissions could be a younger generation of writers whose experience was fully Soviet. They didn't have an experience of anything pre-Soviet and um, who were much more likely to uh, be happy enough with Soviet policies. So it had the effect of getting rid of a large critical cohort within the writer's union, you know, people who had declared their loyalty to the Soviet union, but still in fact harbored great discontent and great criticisms. So it was a way of re-engineering the membership of the writer's union um, to make it more friendly to the government. Now that would have happened eventually Anyway, people die, people get older, and people die, um, but it was sped up.
0: Did uh, um, it occurs to me when you were saying that? So, are there any uh, uh, you know terror novels? Like, did any of the members of the Writers Union write any novels trying to you know justify or make sense of the the terror itself? Or was that kind of a uh, verboten subject?
1: Nothing that could be published. Um, you know, the, the work, I guess, that first comes to mind is the secret, uh, the secret novel that Bulgakov wrote, uh, The Master and Margarita. Um, he wrote it, he wrote it for his desk drawer and his widow was able to get it published in 1966. <laughs> um, Lydia Chukovskaya um, wrote a novella about this as well, um, Sofia Petrovna is the name of it. Um, And uh, Anna Akhmatova wrote her poem, Requiem. Um, She was standing in a line of women at an NKVD office. These were women who had a husband or a son in the labor camps, in the Gulag. And they wanted to send a package, find out whether their relative had the right to receive a package. Um, and one, the, one of the women who was standing in this long line next to Akhmatova recognized her and whispered to her, can you write about this? And Akhmatova said, I can. And she wrote Requiem. So there are those, you know, there were writers at the time who did, but these things couldn't be published until much, much later.
0: I I was hoping you were going to bring up uh, Bulgakov there because actually part of what made me uh, uh, your about your your book that piqued my interest in the title to begin with is that that kind of climactic scene in the Writers Union building is. Probably my favorite scene in Bulgakov's novel. <laughs> That's a hilarious uh, scene. If the listeners, if you, if you haven't uh, read The Master and Margarita, uh, it's uh, it's an adventure. <laughs> so,
1: oh, absolutely a fabulous book! It's a, kind of manages to be a cult novel, and I think a work of high literature all in one.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a uh, quite a book. Uh, something that. Um, kind of stood out to me uh, uh, is uh I think it was when you were talking about um of uh you're saying that uh, Writers are trading. I think the way you phrased it was honesty for privilege and so on. You kind of referenced that uh, stuff a, a little bit ago. And something that really stood out to me was you said that uh, even after the terror was over and the de-Stalinization campaign was underway, uh, that, that people still held writers still held uh, at least some of them did Stalin in this kind of awe. And and uh, I think it was Avdiyenko in particular um, that you you mentioned that about. So I was wondering if you could talk about how you'd explain this, that even after writers kind of had, I don't know, practical, the the, the leeway to be critical of Stalin, uh, since he's not there any longer, they still seem to hold him in this kind of awe. So how would you you explain that in the case of writers who are really kind of at the the leading edge of Stalin's, uh, you know, wrath or, you know, Mercurial decision making. Did uh, you talk about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like to talk about it, although I also want to be a little humble and careful about it, um, because you, if you haven't been through it yourself, I don't know how much you can really know for sure um, how another person feels. But I I guess I'd say two things, and and I do discuss one of them at some length in the book. Um, One of them is, uh, and I'll get rid of this one first, something like Stockholm Syndrome, where the hostage, after spending time um, with, with his or her captors, starts to identify with them. But I think the more important one is... Stalin had an incredible magnetism. Um, and these people who came close to him and, and had interactions with him, they came under his sway. Sometimes it was only momentary. I think that Bulgakov and Pasternak even experienced that, but in a momentary sort of a way. That they were able to sort of get distance from it and, and come to their senses. But Avdeenko, Sadeyev, uh, these people were really, you know, somebody said of Sadeyev, you know, he was like a moth attracted to the flame, where the flame was power. He was a power lover, but the flame was also Stalin. Um, In Avdeenko's case, uh, Avdeyenko was... A homeless orphan during the Civil War. A homeless orphan during the Civil War meant that you banded together with other homeless orphans. Um, we call them in Russian the biesprizorniki, which has that that connotation of groups of street orphans, street children, roaming the streets, you know, in, in search of food somehow, um, robbing people for food. Avdiyenko later on saying, I, "I could have committed the most most horrible crimes at that stage in my life." Um Avdeyan Cole was uh, targeted by the party as somebody that had the potential to be. A great proletarian writer. This was a a, a a party desire: was that great writers should emerge from among the working class. This actually turned out to be a pipe dream; it didn't happen. But Avdeenko wrote a novel. It was heavily edited, and then Gorky supported him, and um, he was kind of taken under the wing of communist literary cadres who tried to help him develop into a wonderful novelist. He got a top level, he got a job at Pravda. He was sent on all kinds of wonderful trips, some of them abroad. He was given an American-made Buick as a personal car. He was showered with honor and privilege. Uh, again, in exchange for write more books, write more books. We know you can do it. When he himself was defamed um, and brought to a private hearing um, with with members of the Politburo, he was absolutely shattered. And all he could think of was, how do I get back in the good graces of the Communist Party? They expelled him. Um, He had to give up his literary career for a couple of decades and um, go back to being a coal miner in the Urals, which is where he was from. Um, And he could never get over it. He eventually was accepted back into the Communist Party. And he wrote memoirs in the 1980s um, in which there is a very funny duality a, a lot of contradictions that he doesn't seem to notice in himself he says that he noticed that the that pravda was being dishonest when it wrote articles shaming various people he knew that the article that pravda wrote shaming him had been initiated by Stalin. But his reaction was not to distance himself as much as possible from the Communist Party. He didn't reject the Communist Party. All of his energy was expended on getting back into it, getting back into it and getting back into Stalin's good graces. And um, it's an emotional tie. It's an irrational tie. We see it also with Konstantin Simonov, who had uh, much greater critical faculties than Avdienko did. And we see it with Fadeyev in the suicide note. Uh, the intellectual position is Stalin committed many atrocities against us. The emotional position is. I feel very attached to Stalin. I actually love him.
0: I think uh, I think here we probably ought to uh, get in then to uh, Fadeev's suicide and the note that he left, since that figures so prominently in the uh, in the book. So, could you talk about what what drove Fedyev to suicide and and what conclusions you've you've drawn from that?
1: Yeah, you know the suicide note has been. Uh, published many, many times, at least in Russian. Um, But I I thought it needed a little bit of a a closer look and and analysis. Uh, What drove Fadyev to suicide? You know, I start the book with Mayakovsky's suicide. And I rather quickly, perhaps too quickly, in a a couple of paragraphs, uh, point out that at the end of my story is going to be Fadeyev's suicide. And isn't this ironic? Because Mayakovsky was one of the writers whom Fadeyev had harassed in the 1920s, before the Writers' Union, when Fadeyev was in rap. And Mayakovsky, in his suicide note, referenced rap. Not Fadeyev actually, but Fadyev's close, uh, close friend, Vladimir Yermilov. So the two suicides kind of invite comparison, and yet they're very different. Mayakovsky committed suicide as a young man in his 30s at the height of his creative powers. Fadyev committed suicide as an aging man in his late 50s. With, with all of his best literary work far in his past, unable to write, unable to write because of all of the moral compromises he has made along the way, not only in his writing, but in his dealings with writers, in his countersigning of the arrest warrants for writers. And so this is another way that the Uh, the shame culture puts pressure on you, especially if you're a high-level official. Very nice to be chosen to lead the writers' union and, in a sense, to be writer number one. Um, But then what you discover once you're in the job is that if a writer is arrested by the NKVD, the NKVD sends you over some paperwork to fill out, and it's an order for the person's arrest. It's signed by the head of the secret police, and then there's a row for you to sign your name. It was called countersigning. You had to be a signatory to the arrest warrant. Um, I think that probably was, if you had to pick out one of the many factors that drove Fadeyev to suicide, it must surely have been that. When he looked back on how many writers whose arrest he signed off on, Um, He didn't commit suicide until Khrushchev's campaign exposing Stalin's crimes was well underway. And this has caused many of Vadayev's detractors to say, see, it's not even that he had a conscience. It's just that suddenly he was exposed. Stalin's crimes were exposed. All of the writers knew that Fadayev was complicit in them. Ergo, Fadzeev himself was exposed, he could not stand the public scrutiny, and he committed suicide. Now, that may be true, but I think it's true only to an extent, only to an extent. And I think if I had to weigh the factors, I would not give it the major um, role. I do think he had a conscience, and I think that he spent 30 years of his life trying to suppress it. It would keep rising up. He would keep pressing it down. Um, this is a phenomenon that's discussed in a in much fuller, and a much better way than I ever could in um, Yuri Slyoskin's marvelous book, The House of Government. Yeah,
0: That was quite a book.
1: Yeah, that, that, that is quite a book. I'm truly in awe of it. Um, and 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 so gripping as well as not just magnificent research, but sort of just written in a way that you don't want to put the book down. Um, but anyway, so I think for Fadier, if it was you know finally he could no longer ignore his conscience. Yes, there was also uh, the public shame, and yet that suicide note barely mentions Stalin. It seems to say that, yes, Stalin did a lot of bad things, but you Politburo members who have now come to the leadership of our country since Stalin's death, you people are much worse. That that is what he actually writes in his suicide note. Um, And although Stalin personally was the one who put pressure on Fadyev, always to compromise himself. Fadyev, does not make it appear that way in his suicide note. Uh, He uses the passive voice. I was turned into a workhorse. I was forced to ignore my writing. Our best writers have all been killed. All of those are in the passive voice because either he doesn't want to say that Stalin is the one who is responsible for the arrests of all of the best writers. Um, or he doesn't want to say that I was the one who was an accomplice to all of this. And I knew it. And my conscience bothered me. But I decided that my conscience should take uh, should take a subordinate role to the good of the party.
0: So uh, we're... We're starting to get towards the end of our time here, and so maybe now is a good time for me to mention that I was I was sitting back when I when I finished the book, uh, and kind of thinking about you know, okay, big picture, you know, what are the what are the lessons here overall uh, for the you know studying the, the Soviet Union and the Stalin era, and who knows, maybe maybe beyond that and. In particular, I I had never run across the uh, the Moshe Levin quote that you uh, you reproduced in in your book. I uh, I'm quoting Levin here, where he says that the uh, speedy and half baked mass education may tend to make people more vulnerable to propaganda and indoctrination. And uh, I was wondering if you could uh, riff for a minute on what what you took to be the implication of that quote. And if there's any kind of broader lessons uh, that, that we could pull from the material in your book based on that, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah. quite a statement of, of Levin's. Like I said, I'd, I'd never run across that before. And it, it, you know, needless to say, kind of stood out on the page there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It really, yeah. That is quite a quote from Levin. Um, yeah. So first the, the context in which I, Uh, used that quote, and then maybe something about broader lessons. Um, So I argue that uh, for different times um, throughout the period from 1932 to 1953, let's say, um, Stalin chose people to lead the Writers' Union who were appropriate for his policy at that time. And the Levin quote came in for the period of the Great Terror, 1937-38 when Stalin did choose someone with a speedy and half-baked education to lead the Writers' Union, uh, because this was a person who would uncritically hunt for writers who were sabotaging the country, or writers who were spies, whatever accusation was appropriate. This was Vladimir Stavsky. He was only in that position at the head of the Writers' Union for those two years of the terror. And um, his departure from that position coincided with the downfall of Yezhov, of, of the, the head of the secret police who presided precisely in the two years of the Great Terror, and only in those two years. Um, so Stalin needed somebody like that, somebody with a kind of an Avdeyan-like uh, uh, lack of critical faculty, lack of education. Uh, but there was some education, speed courses, right? Um So Stavsky, Stavsky, I think, didn't have the kind of conscience that would cause him to think, gee, I'm sending these people to be arrested and probably to to be executed or to die in in the gulag. Fadiev had that problem and he had to suppress it. Stavsky, I don't think, ever had it. I think he was completely convinced by uh, the press's argument of the moment. So what are the larger lessons? Um, in my book at the end, I, I, I stick to generalities. I, I do draw, in a sense, a very general larger lesson, which is that um, we should never allow someone else to overrule our conscience. You can suppress your conscience for maybe even a lifetime. Dave suppressed his for, I don't know, 25 years maybe. Um, but ultimately, it will come back. It, it, you'll never really be free of it. It's always going to be gnawing at you, and ultimately, it's going to just come back in a rush and you're going to crash. Um, now, one could, if one wanted to, draw much more specific lessons for our own society and our own time. Um, I think those lessons are there to be drawn. When I started this book, which was a long time ago because it, it just took me a long time to do it, I had no thought. Of any sort of comparison with American society today, as the years went on, and I was still writing the book, I began to think, "Wow, I see, I see a lot of things in our own in our own culture um, that that are not so different. Maybe it's a different more, difference, more of degree than kind." Um, and I guess I'll just take one more step, but I still want to keep it a little bit general. Um, I guess a lesson that I've come out with is we should not take our democracy for granted because really people are subjected to pressure. That's really what it's about. Power in exchange for pressure, yielding to pressure in exchange for power or in exchange for privilege or in exchange for something. Um, people are always subject to pressure. You know, all of us have given into it at certain times in our lives, the question is how much and how serious has the damage been? And if you just multiply that by enough people in a society, um, you can find that your democracy will be in trouble. So um, Aaron, I don't know if you wanna, I, you probably have some lessons in your own mind that you were wondering whether I was going to articulate <laughs> or not. But And I think that people can certainly go further, but I, I'm gonna not do that because this is, I did, I did write a scholarly work about the Soviet Union. And, and so I thought I should just keep the book that way.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm not. Uh, this isn't one of those leading the witness questions. Uh, I suppose, that you know, at least in my mind, uh, you know, I find the... Um, the emphasis in your book on the role that, uh, that shame and honor culture can play, uh, you might think about how that plays out on, you know, social media these days, uh, uh, the, you know, sh- public shaming rituals of, uh, you know, people on, uh, you know, Twitter or whatever. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, uh, you know, sometimes it's, you know, hard or not even possible to translate a specific scholarly work into, you know, broader cultural or political lessons or whatever. I just uh, thought I would uh, uh, thought I would inquire. Um, so, well, thank you very much. I think we're about, about out of time here for uh, uh, agreeing to, to, to talk to me about it. Because on the one hand, I mean, this is kind of, you know, as you said, a, you know, a scholarly book on a fairly... Uh, on a fairly narrow topic, but at the same time, you know, for anybody who's interested in, uh, uh, in the Stalin era, it's kind of a nice snapshot, you know, on a specific subject of the way Stalinism tended to work.
1: Yeah, well, um, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's really been my great pleasure um, to be able to talk to you about this.
0: Well, thank you very much, Carol, and uh, we'll uh, uh, talk to you at some point in the future, I'm sure.
1: Thank you.